0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: Thanks, Dewey. Today we're talking with Steve Ball, professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. Steve is author of a widely used introductory Greek primer, and a reader in First John. And among other things, he is contributor to the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary on the Pastoral Epistles and Philemon. And he's also a commentator in the ESV Study Bible on Ephesians. All these are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Steve, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you, Scott. You are just back from what sometimes is called a sabbatical and what we call around here a study leave. Why do scholars and professors take study
2: leaves? Because we can. (laughs) (laughs) We take them, we're granted them, we really should say, by our board to allow us primarily to work on a project. The perception is that we just have lots of time because we don't teach that many hours, but class uh, requirements really take a lot of time. It takes a lot of preparation each week to keep developing classes, and so your time to get away and really focus study and do scholarship is limited during the course schedules. We're granted these study leaves to really get away from class requirements so we can focus on working on a project.
1: When you're in the middle of a school year, you're engaged with students, you're marking essays, you're answering (laughs) questions, giving lectures, and doing preparation to teach those courses.
2: For example, in December, every year, I have 1,200 or more pages of papers, term papers to grade. So usually on Christmas Day, I'm still grading.
1: (laughs) So it's difficult to get away and to do the kind of of research that you need to do. Some people might say, well, look, don't you already know everything you need to know? What's the value of getting away to do intensive, detailed research?
2: Well, I don't know everything. For example, I uh, read Ephesians in the earliest papyrus manuscript all the way through for the first time. Our modern Greek text is really a modern script with lots of helps uh, called accents and breathing marks. And the words are divided in, like English words, you have a space between each word. But what the ancient manuscripts look like is really quite different, particularly the papyrus I was reading is one of the earliest that might go back as far as 150 A.D., uh, maybe a little later, It's uh, there's some debate on that. But it's all capital letters with no spacing between words. And it's just, you know, uh, each line just keeps running on. And I've never really sat down and worked through those texts, and I did this time. And it was really a delight and very informative.
1: Let's back up and introduce the listener to the book of Ephesians. Who wrote it? When was it written? Why was it written? And and we'll come back and talk about some other questions after that.
2: Ephesians is written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, a letter without a particular clear single goal. He doesn't have a problem he's addressing exactly. Mm -hmm. I think there are some things in the background you can discern, but they're not major. It's not like Galatians where there's this big problem that he has to address. Or Corinthians, where they've sent him a letter with lots of different questions, and they have some, you know, problems in their congregation that he wants to sort through. With Ephesians, it's more generic in a sense. Uh, it was written during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. So, as the book of Acts ends mm. with Paul in Rome under house arrest, that's when he wrote the book of Ephesians. He sent it to them. You can tell by reading the end of the book, it's typical in books like this, to uh, inform your recipients who is bringing the letter. Mm -hmm. And Paul does that. He says it's Tychicus, which is the Greek word for lucky. So this (laughs) fellow's name is Lucky. He got to bring Ephesians. I would say that's a lucky thing to do. (laughs) He got to bring Ephesians to Ephesus. He also brought Colossians to Colossae. But he sent this uh, letter through Tychicus to Ephesians during that period. And so that would be around, the the dates are not exactly known, but it's around 65, roughly, A.D. A lot of modern
1: scholars don't think the Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians. Why is that?
2: Right. A recent commentator who uh, surveyed that came down to about half do believe Paul wrote it and half don't. In fact, if you start reading scholarship on this topic, you find that most people really haven't investigated the whole question very carefully. They just go by a few things they've read or a prevailing consensus in their circles, for example. In fact, the actual work on the question is rather limited. There are just not that many people who've done serious research into that issue. One of the major issues that's raised for doubting that Paul wrote Ephesians is the style. And by style, it really is a modern analysis. People have analyzed you know, what words are used, the construction of his sentences, the fact that certain words appear that are not very common, or, for example, he doesn't mention justification. That term really doesn't appear in Ephesians, where it's uh, very prominent in Romans and Galatians, for example. All of that has been primarily the basis for doubting Paul's authorship. There are, there are really serious problems with that whole analysis. It really gets kind of complicated. There are, there are a lot of problems with it.
1: Can you give us two or three? What- yeah.
2: Well, one of them is, it's a very modern analysis. If you think about the number of Greek words in all the different Greek words in all of Paul's letters, it's not very many, relatively speaking. Native Greek speakers, for example, would have anywhere from 50 to 100,000 different Greek words at their command. And Paul was a native Greek speaker. He grew up bilingual, undoubtedly, with Greek and Aramaic. And so he was he could speak Greek fluently from his earliest childhood. So let's just say he had an 80,000-word vocabulary. Well, we only have a few thousand different words in his letters, so he he could have used a lot of other words. Secondly, it is normal in antiquity just because of the mechanics of writing with a reed pen, dipping it in ink, and writing on a piece of parchment on your lap because they didn't use tables back then to write. Uh, the whole mechanics of physically writing something was so burdensome and so contrary to their educational direction.
1: Can you explain that for a minute? Contrary to their educational
2: direction, what does that mean? Um, In antiquity, all education focused on speaking well in public. And Mm. Paul would have been a very accomplished, if not a professional, public speaker. And his training, his upbringing, all of his education focused on speaking in public. The recommendation in antiquity was, you really don't want to write physically something yourself. You really should dictate it or give the gist of it to a secretary. That's the kind of mechanical stuff. Let the mechanics do that. I mean, that would be their attitude. You're already accomplished at thinking and speaking on your feet, as it were, and that's really how you should compose something. So Paul would have composed this with Uh, either a co-author or a secretary and he names his co-authors in a lot of those other epistles so you have Sosthenes, you have timothy and lots of them and others are helping him in the actual composition in ephesians you don't have a co-author and he doesn't name his secretary people don't when they get to style they don't think about the involvement of the secretary in the stylistic features uh and it could have been quite heavy A uh, secretary could suggest certain terms, particularly if he was familiar with the audience where it was going, so Ephesians, he could suggest certain terms that would be very meaningful to the audience, to Paul. And he himself, of course, knew things as well. So he would shape his vocabulary and manner of speaking for his audience. So to Rome, it would be a certain way, and to Galatians, another way, and then Ephesians, another way. Ephesus was a center of rhetoric a center of public speaking. And Ephesians has some polish to it that really would have resonated with the Ephesians in particular. And he spent a year and a half there speaking publicly daily. We read in Acts 19. So I think Ephesians has a certain character that really is shaped because it's written to the Ephesians that makes a little different from Romans, let's say, place he'd never been. Modern scholars usually don't even consider that, although there are exceptions. There are some really good work recently on the involvement of secretaries and composition of Paul's letters, and I think it's very important work uh, taking into consideration the reality of life and antiquity that modern scholars in general who deny Paul's authorship don't consider. And then finally, if you start reading ancient people and ask them about what they thought about style— and they did They did talk about that extensively. I haven't read a modern New Testament scholar who's ever quoted these guys. There are about four different authors that I've read recently on this. And they do consider matters of style primarily revolving around meter. That means the cadence of the utterance. And they talk about that at length. as That's really what makes your style distinctive. And if you start analyzing the meter of Romans, Galatians corinthians and ephesians there are a lot of similarities i think modern people just haven't considered all the factors involved you're listening to office hours
1: and we're talking with steve baugh about the book of ephesians and particularly about the book of ephesians as it first appeared in greek in the ancient manuscripts and how it came to be steve when we come back i want you to answer this question How is it two groups of scholars can read the same text and come to such drastically different conclusions? And he'll answer that question right after
0: this. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, Jay Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California. Where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu 888 480 8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church.
1: What's the difference ultimately between those who see this as a Pauline epistle and those who don't? It seems to me that. One of the things that distinguishes one group of New Testament scholars from another is the assumptions with which one group operates over against the assumptions shared by the
2: other. Well, of course, here at the seminary, we confess the inerrancy and utter truthfulness of Scripture. So when you have an epistle claiming to be from Paul in many places, like Ephesians, There is our commitment to the authenticity and truthfulness of those statements. Now, that a priori, that uh, assumption, that commitment we have, still allows us to look at the question. We do it honestly, but we have our convictions that shape our work on that issue. Now, you have another group of people who are really—there's a variety of motives, and I can't uh, assign motives to these folk— By and large, you have people in a climate where it really is not popular to affirm that Paul wrote Ephesians, and to do so, you'd be regarded as an oddball or a fundamentalist or some other
1: And that's what I really wanted to get at, is the pressure that exists within the academy to go along with what are regarded by some, and sometimes by influential writers, as the received, accepted opinion. Yeah. And which, if we're thinking about the nature of academic work, the notion of received, accepted, unquestioned opinions seems to be contrary in in a way to the nature of academic work. But that pressure really exists within the academic guild. It sure does.
2: Yeah. In every field, not just biblical studies or – you know, the divinity area that we're working in at the seminary, but in sciences and math, I mean, every uh, area of discipline has uh, certain positions that are received and believed in without really being examined, or, uh, you know, there's a lot of politics involved and all of that. But if you can just get away from all that, there's some really interesting questions that haven't been explored very well. By uh, folk who deny Paul's authorship of Ephesians, and some issues that they really just haven't taken the time with that I think are very interesting and, for me, very persuasive to confirm Paul's authorship on Ephesians. One of the things that Machen complained about when he was confronting the
1: liberals in his day was that they really didn't do very good scholarship. And he was convinced that good scholarship actually supported the historic understanding of the Christian faith.
2: I think there are, you know, liberal scholars who do good scholarship on a number of ways, but it's often very narrow in just in the nature of their discipline. If they're in in a university, they have a very, you know, narrow field, for example. But at the same time, there are people who really don't do very good scholarship in the sense of knowing the first century the world of Paul and the reality of living in that world very well. For example, uh, one of the things I'm working on is really the oral character of the book of Ephesians. Now, we know about that in the Gospels. There's a lot of work on that, some by liberal scholars. It is very fine work and very helpful, but not much, or a little bit, but not much on a book like Ephesians. And the fact is that it really would have been experienced firsthand at its original presentation orally. I mean, it would have been presented by Tychicus, probably, although there could have been a reader at Ephesus who would have read or presented the book, because only about 10% of the people in antiquity could read at all. And even if you could read, your preference in antiquity was to listen to something. All works were written to be heard, and this is easy to show, they even talk about, now, your audience, or I hope my audience. And, you know, it's the word is listener, not reader. They rarely use the term reader for the audience. And it, it's just the nature of the case that something heard is experienced differently from sitting down and reading something word by word silently. So it would re- be really valuable for you, rather than just to read a verse or two in Ephesians and meditating on it, that's a very good thing to do, and I commend that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, suggest that you don't do that. <laughs> Paul Ab- says,
1: don't read. Your no, Bible. no, 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 <laughs>
2: no. Absolutely, read your Bible. Meditate on the particulars of it. It is uh, fruitful in every way. But one of the things that we rarely do in the modern world, is listen to the whole. So I suggest you get a book on tape, and you can do it in English this time. Don't You don't have to do the Greek. <laughs> but get a book on tape and listen to the whole book of Ephesians and just see if you don't hear things that you've never really thought about before mm-hmm. in that book, even if you've studied it carefully.
1: People look at it and they see the verse numbers and they see punctuation, particularly in their English Bibles, but even in their Greek Bibles. And that helps influence the way they um, look at the text and and the way they understand the text. But if you're looking at a manuscript from circa 150 A.D. without all of those things, how did looking at that manuscript affect the way you are reading the flow of Paul's argument
2: in Ephesians. Yeah, it wasn't only in the manuscript that contributed, but it was also reading ancient people and how they talk about reading okay. and listening to a work and presenting a work. People don't realize that verse numbers were invented in the 1500s, roughly. They had been around before then, some going back, you know, some sort of divisions like that going way back, but certainly not to the first century and not even the second or third century. All those verse numbers and such are artificial add-ons to the text. If you strip them away, what you get are the actual original divisions of the text that sometimes are quite different. And it it doesn't affect any doctrine. It's just a way to uh, read the document and understand the flow of text better. The secret is the real divisions in antiquity were where the reader would take a breath. And if you do that in Ephesians 1, 3 through 3-14, which is one unit, it's, not a, it's called a periodic sentence. Periodic is from the Greek word period, a uh, a whole group. That's where you took a breath, at the end of the period. And then a periodic sentence is a string of eight or nine of these things. If you do that in Ephesians 1, 3 through 3-14, what you end up with is a text where the reader took a breath right after saying, in Christ Jesus, in Christ, in him, before him, in him, in him, in Christ. <laughs> I mean, and and so you just see the that Christ is the center of this initial passage. So that's Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, where Paul is blessing God, and he's blessing God because of the work of Christ. And it just focuses on Christ because you think about you know hearing something and the author is writing in such a way that the reader would take a breath after saying in christ in him you know you're getting this sense of
1: so there's how, a there's a rhythm built oh, yeah. into the text oh, yeah. there's
2: a meter yeah. and a, a a flow long vowels at the end where the reader would stretch it out in christ
1: the headings that we have i mean pe- people probably realize at some level that these headings are not in the original text, but just to get everything out on the table so that people can read their Bibles and hear them as well as, as possible. Uh, the verse numbers, the headings, the punctuation, these are all attempts by modern publishers to help us understand the text, right. and many times they're quite correct and quite helpful, Right. But They're not necessarily, in every instance, the best interpretation of a text. Right. And so you're getting behind that and trying to do what we've always said that we want to do, and that is to read a text, hear a text, understand a text in its original context. Right.
2: Exactly. That's the key is using ancient sources to help us understand the whole experience of a text like this better. That's what I've been trying to do.
1: You've been listening to Office Hours, and we've been talking with Steve Baugh about the book of Ephesians, about how it originally appeared, and about what that tells
0: us about what it teaches and about who wrote it. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.